This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. All right. Happy Cinco de Mayo, everybody. I'm here with Christopher DeSoto from Hiatus Tequila. How are you, sir? Doing excellent. How about yourself? Doing fine, thanks. I, don't, I actually don't know much about Cinco de Mayo, do you? <laughs> Other than it's an excuse to drink tequila. Oh, Cinco de Mayo <laughs> is an American holiday for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> it, has, it, it has to do with a battle that happened in the state of Puebla. It was a significant battle for that particular state. But for the country as a whole, most Mexicans have never heard of it. <laughs> so, oh, really? <laughs> so, so in the U.S., uh, some brilliant marketeers, um, you know, decades ago, made it a bigger deal in the U.S. than it is in Mexico, and it's celebrated wildly, wildly here. But uh, yeah, most of Mexico does not c- celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I think maybe one or maybe two states actually recognize it as an official holiday. Funny. Yep, and it's an American holiday like that. So um, let's uh, explain a little how we how we linked up. Uh, you, your company sponsored a great uh, class for us, a master class on, on tequila, which was a, a, amazing. It was a really incredible class. So uh, thanks for doing that. It was awesome. I learned so much. Yeah, well, there's a lot of misconceptions around uh, tequila as as there are around Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's always been part of our brand ethos is to um, bring that level of education. I mean, the fact that the U.S. consumes more tequila than Mexico is impressive. But then when you when you really think about it, most Americans don't actually know that tequila comes from Mexico or a particular region, more importantly, of Mexico. And most of them, when you tell them our tequila is made in the town of tequila, they're shocked that there's a town called tequila. So there's a lot of education around one of America's most popular spirits. And the margarita is still the number one cocktail in the U.S. So when you put all those things together, there's a lot of room for um, improvement on the education side. And that's what we aim to do, but not just brand training, like we bring the Tequila Regulatory Council and like the course that you attended. So it's actually the people that regulate the industry um, that does the educational part versus just a brand telling you what they want you to believe. Right. Yeah, that's important. Well, let's let's talk about your brand first, and then we'll come back to uh, how tequila is made and, and uh, the, the CRT. We'll talk about that. Um, some. How long ago did you found this business? Yeah, so uh, the journey started probably when I was 16, not knowing mm-hmm. that one day I'd be in the tequila business. But uh, honestly, in 2015, um, after having just moved back recently before that to the U.S., and I ended up in New York, I'd been abroad 11 years. The last five of those 11 years was in Mexico, not far from the town of Tequila. And just out of interest for the spirit, I consumed a lot of tequila while I lived in Mexico, a lot of great tequila. Traveled extensively throughout um, the tequila producing region as well as the mezcal producing region and other regions for other spirits uh, in Mexico. And just became very familiar uh, and really geeky about, about tequila. So when I moved back to the U.S. after, again, being away for 11 years, um, tequila and mezcal had become extremely popular and everybody was talking about them. And to my surprise, there was a bunch of new brands that were on the market that I'd never heard of having just left the country in which it, you know, the, the products were produced. So I started uh, going to bars and, and asking you know, to try the latest and greatest new products that they had, most of which were foreign-owned brands that are obviously made in Mexico. And a lot of it, to my uh, disgust, didn't taste anything like what traditional tequila is supposed to taste like. Um, so I did nothing about it at that very moment, but in 2015, after several years now of having consumed a lot of less than good tequilas, <laughs> uh, I decided 
you know, the U.S. needs a better product. Mexico needs a better uh, representation of what good tequila is about. So started this journey in 2015. But we just launched the brand at the very end of 2018. So we're just, what, 14, 15 months now on the market um, in New York, Florida, Missouri, and just recently launched in Indiana. Cool. Well, uh, I've got a little reposado here that you sent over. So I'm going to we'll put a little in my glass while we, while we talk. You bet. <laughs> thanks, thanks for sending that. Great stuff. Of course. Figured Cinco de Mayo, we had to have a, a toast. Yeah, let's do that. Well, salud. Salud. <laughs> Cheers. I got the Blanco here. All right. So, yeah, you're, so your tequila is actually produced in the town of Tequila. I guess we should mention for anybody who doesn't know, um, tequila can be tequila is a subset, really, of mezcal the same way cognac is a subset of brandy, right? It has That's to be correct. Made in a, it has to be made in a certain region. Certain region as well as mezcal can be made from several hundred different types of agave, although they only use really a handful normally. Tequila can only be made from the Blue Weber agave, and that agave has to be grown in the region, and, and which is defined for the tequila-making region, which is beyond just the town of tequila, obviously. Um, and then Mescal now has its own region, so they could make it out of Blue Weber agave made in their region, but they could never call it a tequila, obviously. It would still be just a Mescal. Right. So it, uh, tequila can be made anywhere in the um, the region of Jalisco, or, or the state of Jalisco, right? So there's five states. Um, not all the all of those five states um, in, in their entirety can make tequila. All of Jalisco, and then the f- three bordering states, uh, and then there's one other state in the middle of, of Mexico, basically that can also make tequila. Yeah, it has to be, has to be made in those regions to be called tequila, and it has and uh, has to be made from the Blue Weber agave. And um, the agave, as and as it, uh, opposed to mezcal, the uh, agave are, are roasted rather than. Um, cooked in a, in a smoke pit, right? That's correct. So traditionally, the way, aga- uh, sorry, mezcal is still uh, prepared is the way tequila was at that time too. It was a, a, a pit and it, was, it used fire and that's where mezcal gets its smokiness is from the actual smoke from the fire that's part of their process. There are a few tequilas that still do it that way, but it's very inefficient for such a big industry to do it that way. Mezcal is still a very, very small industry compared to tequila. Um, so, but there are a few tequila brands that do that, and now there's some tequilas that are trying to add other smoky flavors back into their product. I'm not quite sure how they're doing it, but I've seen them marketing themselves and such. But most of uh, tequila, most of the agave for that's used in tequila production is made in an autoclave. Um, that's kind of the most normal, I would say. We we cook our agave in brick ovens, so it's a much longer uh, process. But it get to, to us, it brings out a lot more natural flavor from the agave. And then there's also what's called a diffuser, which is the most industrialized way to make tequila or what you might call tequila. Although to me, it's <laughs> the, the process is um, less than par and it's very controversial in the industry because it's almost like they're making a vodka out of agave and then they have to add flavoring back in to make it try to taste like tequila. So it's controversial, I'm not saying... You know, I'm not here to judge other brands, but it's certainly not the path that we decided to take. For anybody who doesn't know what an autoclave is, it's a big, huge oven, and it's made out of stainless steel generally, right? And it adds pressure pressure as well as heat. Exactly. Think of a pressure cooker. So you can cook something really quick um, in it because you you get a consistent temperature throughout the whole time and it's high high pressure versus in 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 the brick ovens like what we use. You get very much temperature differentiation in the oven, which would make some agave cook 
I, I don't want to say overcook, but cook a little bit more than some in the middle, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just a lot more flavor that's developing in that versus in an autoclave. So think of it like cooking a baked potato on a campfire on a, or in an oven uh, versus putting a, a baked potato in a microwave. You right, definitely right. get different flavors happening. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, diffuser, which you mentioned, what, what is that about? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that it, it can operate. The way I've seen it physically by visiting distilleries, generally what they do is they raise the temperature of the agave enough to get the the juices out of it that, that ultimately the sugars and that the tequila is made from. So think about like putting a lemon in the microwave for 10 seconds you can you didn't cook it necessarily but you can squeeze a lot of a lot more juice out than if you're just taking it at room temperature that's kind of the theory and then they take just the juice and usually put that in into an autoclave to cook so it's kind of like you know you you take the potato you, you you put it in the microwave or sorry you take the potato you squeeze the juice out of the potato and then put the juice in the microwave that's essentially the way i usually explain it that people can understand a little bit better there's some diffuser technology that also uses chemicals. Most tequila brands that I've seen claim they don't do that process, um, but there's a few different ways diffusers can work. But generally what I've seen is they heat up the, you know, they're, they're basically heating up the agave enough, just enough to get the juice out so they're not really cooking the agave. In, yeah. the, in the process. Yeah, so as you said, that's a very industrial method. Uh, you're using the traditional method of um, the, the agave are, are harvested and then um, the, the outside is cut off, right, in the field by the humidors? Yep, all the pinkas or the leaves basically are, are, are removed in the field. Um, and then the way the, the way the Tequila Regulatory Council monitors everything is they actually track agave. So all the farmers, which there's over 13,000 farmers, they have to be registered with the Tequila Regulatory Council. So they know exactly where these agaves are being harvested. They can literally, by satellite, they track some of the movement. They can see the agave being moved to a distillery, which it was sold to. The bill of sale has to be there. So there's always a proof of where things are coming from. The very first stop that happens when they arrive at the distillery is the truck gets weighed. So it was weighed when it leaves the field, and then it's weighed when it arrives to the destination to make sure nothing funny happened in the meantime. <laughs> and then in our distillery, immediately they take a random sample out of the truck, um, four or five agave, and they test it for sugar content. And if any of them don't pass, they just reject the whole truck. Because what happens right now when the price of agave is very inflated um, People are harvesting agave prematurely, so they don't have the right sugar content, but they can still make tequila from it. It's just not a great product. Um, our distillery, first of all, it owns most of its agave fields, and when it doesn't own it, it does uh, business with three families that have, they've been doing business with for decades. So they are very sure of the, 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 the quality of the agave that are coming in, that they're the right ripeness, basically, with the right sugar content before it actually goes into you know the production of our product. And for anybody who doesn't know, uh, agave can take, what, five, seven, even ten years to mature. It's not like uh, grapes that grow every year and you harvest every year. Exactly. And that's, you know, today while you're toasting and you're having your tequila, remember that, that product in that bottle probably started its life eight to ten years ago. It's unbelievable. If you look at, there's no other spirit that takes that long to... To make now, yeah, you could say, well, yeah, but there's 18 year old this and that, but but the actual product to make it, <laughs> to get it into a bottle, uh, for tequila, it's unbelievable. You know, it's uh, and, and ours, I would say, our average is probably around seven years. 
but so many things can change in that time period with you know rain, drought, heat, cold. So sometimes it can the sugar content will be uh, it'll develop earlier or sometimes later. So it's really most brands can't put their hand on their heart and say I swear that our agave are nine years old because it doesn't work like that. Agave have to be harvested when they are ready to be harvested. Uh, not at a certain age, because if they over uh, if they over ripen, basically they they become useless. You know, a f- flower will come out of the heart of the agave, and that's all the sugars racing up to the sky, and then that agave is worthless. So, the farmers know when to harvest them based on you know decades and generations of experience doing it, um, and it's not seasonal. So tequila has to be produced year round. Um, and and that's one of the interesting things that's happened during this uh, pandemic is for for a hot minute they tried to shut down all of uh, tequila production because of you know what hap- has to happen in the distilleries where there's a lot of people involved but they can't otherwise all these farmers would be completely their in source of income would dry up immediately because again it's not seasonal you can't pull the agave out of the field and go store it for six months until you have a use for it. You, so they really, they quickly reversed the, the rule down in Mexico where they try to block tequila production as a result of the pandemic. Um, but it was quickly reversed because they're like, you can't, you'll kill 13,000 farmers source of income. Like, again, it's not seasonal. You have to, and then what do you do? You, you can't just pull the agave out of the ground and again store it so you have to make tequila with it. i mean or other products but you have to allow that to continue to happen or else we would have a massive problem in the industry for agave issues wow so then uh the the truck arrives with the agave and uh what what happens next after the after the sample you mentioned yeah so you'll see some you know different brands do different things as far as uh, how they go about cooking and preparing the agave to be cooked sometimes you'll see them cutting the agave into to halves even quarters it depends on the size of the agave not all agave or even if it's all blue weber it doesn't mean they're all equally sized so um in our case because we use these big ovens that are you know rectangular in shape typically we don't have to cut them down unless they're really big agaves they cook equally fine if they're in big chunks or little chunks so typically they stack the oven and this is all done by hand in our in our distillery so you'll see the guys literally entering into the oven and they usually have a chain a couple of guys throwing up the agave into the oven the guys in the oven putting them in there like puzzle pieces to make sure they can maximize how many they get in there um, and so that's our process. It's all done by hand, and they're typically they're whole agave unless they're just very big so that they can fit them better. Uh, but then, uh, but then a lot of other brands will actually always chop them into halves or quarters or whatever. Particularly if they're using autoclaves because they're you know they've got a round you know hole to fill basically versus a big square to work with. And so they're, it's usually trying to fit the agave in there properly. So it's not necessarily there's any difference in the outcome of cooking because you cut it in halves or whatever. It's just a matter of a fit, really, of how do you get it into the oven. Oh, I didn't realize that. I, I, I thought they were cut to hasten the cooking, you know, like something that's big will typically take longer to cook than something that's smaller, right? So I, I always thought that was a – I didn't realize – that could be done whole. Yeah, interesting. Most of the time, ours are cooked whole, uh, and then again, it depends. You know, again, on the size of, of the, the plant when it comes in. Right, right. And then, so how long will it cook? Yeah, our entire cooking and cooling process it, it it'll change a little bit depending on outside air temperature, but typically we're looking at a forty hour start to finish cook and then cool. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, that an autoclave can probably do that same process in less than 
you know, 10 hours, the cooking mm. and the cooling. That's a, That's got to affect the flavor. It just has to. Right? I mean, you know, everybody <laughs> has their opinions, right? To yeah, us, yeah. that longer cook, you get more caramelization. Yes, you'll get some, let's say, overcooked parts, but that adds flavor. It's not like it's burnt and it's giving a burnt flavor, but it adds, you know, a little bit more of that roasted flavor to the, the final product. Um, and then from there, it's all about, you know, different methodologies around milling. So so now that you've cooked this, you, do, you need to get the juice and the sugars and all that out of the cooked agave. And there's, there's different styles of doing that. We use something that's sort of like a corkscrew where it gently squeezes that juice um, out of bigger chunks versus um, a lot of brands will use a milling process, like a roller mill that really almost uh what's the word i'm looking for i mean it it, it basically it shreds it it right? shreds it yeah it pulverizes it really is what i was trying to say mm. and mm-hmm. and the reason we don't want that as our brand you know the agave is a is a plant and it's got a lot of sweetness it also has a lot of bitterness and in the fibers of the plant which the plants are very fibrous and there's a lot of the bitterness trapped in those fibers and when you gently squeeze it out, you get less of that bitterness. If you use a roller mill and you're pulverizing it, you get a lot of that bitterness um, that comes out in those fibers. So that's our methodology. We want a gentle crush, basically, to get as little of that bitterness out. So it's more like a, a pressure, like a corkscrew, and it goes through a series of those, and it's constantly being rinsed with uh, water that's from a well on our site. We're on the edge of an extinct volcano, so all our water is naturally filtered through that process. Um, and then we are constantly rinsing those sugars out um, through the milling process. And then that all goes into fermentation. Um, and then fermentation for us usually is a five to seven day period. We use open tanks. Um, where our distillery is located, um, we have it's surrounded by agave fields. Um, there's lots of mangoes, there's lemon lime trees. So there's a lot of natural airborne yeast that we actually want in the, in the process. So we use open air fermentation. And that's typically the longest part of the process because outside air temperature, again, can impact that, whether it'll be five days or seven days or somewhere in between has a lot to do with what's the outside air temperature because this is all an open environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's indoors and it's covered and it's protected, but it's not air, it's not artificially air conditioned. So uh, the temperature will affect how long the fermentation process takes. And then... Um, and then from do you, do you add any yeast besides the natural yeast? The, nope. The natural yeast part of it comes out of the, the cooking process. They collect what basically drips down out of that and create yeast from that and then again the airborne yeast that's just part of the environment in which which we are our distillery is located um, some brands will put accelerants in there because they want to speed up that process um, that's where stuff like gluten can be introduced into the, the process typically tequilas are all gluten free but when people start putting flavorings in there which is common practice and they they start modifying um, what they're using for yeast that's when gluten can actually get introduced. So we're a certified gluten-free product. You'd think, well, isn't all tequila gluten-free? Well, no, it's not because people are putting additives in there that by regulation they're allowed to, um, but we don't. We don't do any of that, and then we go the further step to make sure you know we, we send our products to the lab to get certified as gluten-free products. Yeah. I, I eat gluten-free, so I know a bit about that issue. <laughs> ah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's cool. That you, I didn't even notice the, the logo on there that it says gluten-free, but that's that's cool that you um, certified it because I know that uh, adds to the expense somewhat. It, it does, and we're also certified kosher, um, and we didn't do the, cert- the kosher certification just for a, a niche of a market. 
I was really trying to find a, a, some kind of certification for overall quality standard. And uh, in Mexico, what was available, what made the most sense to me um, was kosher certification because they literally come in and inspect the facility um, several times a year, and it's all about cleanliness of the facility. I mean, that's not all the kosher certification's about, but for me, that's one part of it that was important. Now, I'm not saying the market in general will know that, but I, it, for those that do, they understand that, okay, someone literally comes through the factory and, and checks every part of the process for a higher level of cleanliness as part of the kosher certification. So that's why we did that. Oh, cool. Um, that's you know, great. Obviously, there's a, there's a niche, there's a market niche for that. Some of our New York stores in, uh, in particular are very... Um, specific about only having kosher uh, products on their shelves. So uh, that also served a purpose for that. Cool. So uh, let's continue the journey here. It ferments uh, five to seven days, you said. And uh, so next into the the distill, yeah? That's right. So distillation. So minimum for tequila in in general is two times distillation. Uh, You'll see some brands now doing it more three times i've heard rumors of a fourth time distillation but i haven't physically seen a product that says that um but a lot of the newer brands for the north american market are, are doing three time distillation to me it's a shame because you know distil- distilling takes out a lot of impurities it takes out alcohols that you don't want like methanol um but it also strips away flavor and there's no way to get around that um so the more you distill the more flavor you're removing so the more you distill, the more you're creating a very neutral spirit. So when you think about vodkas, you know some of the most premium vodkas have been five, six, seven, eight times distilled um, because they're supposed to be neutral. They design those products to be extremely neutral. And tequila, well, the more you distill, the more you lose agave flavor. Yes, you're getting rid of impurities, but two-time distillation gets rid of the majority of the things that we don't want in us. Uh, from an impurity standpoint. Beyond that, you're just stripping flavor. And then I've seen these same brands that do multiple, you know, three-time distillations have to go back and put in uh, sweeteners and additives, um, flavors, because they've stripped all the flavor out of it. So it's kind of like a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. Um, but d- two-times distillation is all we do, and that's really where the, the magic of, of the master distiller comes to play, knowing when to cut the heads and the tails at the right time so that you end up with a very... Uh, pleasant tasting product versus a very harsh product and then as i was saying earlier the agave has um the the plant itself has a lot of sweetness it has a lot of bitterness i see a lot of brands that are doing these three times distillation and i think what they're thinking is we'll make a smoother product in the end but what gives tequila its bad boy reputation that when you think tequila face it's really the bitterness because the alcohol content in almost all spirits on the shelf in the U.S. are roughly the same. You know, it can vary a little bit, but when you think tequila, everybody goes, Ugh. you know, they think it's so much stronger. Well, it's not yeah. that it's stronger from an alcohol standpoint. It's that it has that bitterness and, and uh, the least care that you put into making a product, the more that bitterness remains. And that's what gets us. That's what burns like heck at the finish of, you know, doing a shot. So our trick was um, we, we need to figure out how to remove some of that bitterness. I think some of these brands that are you know three times distilling, they think they're removing that, but they're not because that's not an alcohol. That's not an impurity. It's an actual, it ends up being an oil that's part of you know the natural process of making tequila. 
So we figured out a way to filter out some of that oil, just enough of that to remove a little bit of that bitter edge that is natural in tequila because it's natural in the plant that it comes from. Um, so if you try our Blanco, it's extremely sippable. And it's not because, like a lot of brands will do, they dump sweeteners or things in there to try to cover up that bitterness. We've actually removed some of that bitterness. So we say our tequila is very clean and it's it's very natural because we're not putting stuff in there to cover up a bad product. We actually just do things differently in the process. Everything from how we source our agave through how we cook it, through how we mill it, through how we ferment it to distillation. But then ultimately the, the very last step that we do is just a little bit of a filtration process that we can't say we're the only ones that do. In our distillery, we're the only ones that do it, but we can't say as, as a rule, like we've invented something different. It's just, it took us years to get our flavor profile where we want, and it came down to a specific level of filtration that just gets rid of a little bit of that bitterness that makes even our Blanco extremely, extremely sippable. Nice. And it's, um, you're using uh, pot stills, right? Column stills are allowed, right? Yep, there's a lot of the big brands will use column stills. We use pot stills. Ours are um, stainless steel on the outside, but they're copper pipes in the inside. So what you see is not the romantic copper still, uh, but what's inside is, is the copper pipes that it's all running through. It's just the outside, it's easier to, to get the, you know, to have this equipment last a lot longer in that environment when it's made from stainless steel on the outside versus uh, copper on the outside. Yeah. So uh, we should mention for anyone who doesn't know, uh, if it doesn't say 100% uh, de agave or words to that effect, uh, it's um, what we used to call a mixto, but I learned in that class um, that you gave that that term's not used anymore, right? Yeah, unfortunately, um, the big brands that make a lot of that, and I won't <laughs> name any brands today, um, <laughs> they didn't like the word mixto. So um, for your listeners, there's two types of tequila. Um there's if it's just called tequila on the bottle versus 100% agave on the bottle, um, it's it can be as little as 51% from agave, and the rest of it could be sugars from usually sugar cane. Sometimes they use corn syrup down there, but typically it's a sugar cane, um, simple sugar-based alcohol. So it's basically like two different types of alcohol in one container, essentially. You know, and if if it says 100% agave, that means there's nothing else but agave to make the final product. And then beyond that, you start getting the different categories, the different expressions, you know, Blancos, Reposados. So you can get that in both, um, 100% and just tequila. Uh, you, get, you can get all those different expressions. So it's very confusing for the, the consumer that doesn't have yeah, the education, and that goes back to our ethos of trying to bring more of that education. And we're not saying, hey, there's something wrong with that other type, which just is called tequila, we're just saying, you know, the consumer should be aware of it. They should know yeah, for sure. so that they're making, you know, the best choice for themselves, particularly if they're looking to make high-end cocktails or they're looking for something, you know, very sippable. Right. You know, the, the 100% agave tequila, it's a much more, in our opinion, balanced um, product. And a lot of the people that have had bad tequila experiences, it's because they had what used to be called mixtos. And then on top of it being like basically two different types of alcohol in one bottle, they're also probably mixed it in a horribly sugary yeah. cocktail of some sort. <laughs> right. Um, so they were just getting, you know, their body was just getting inundated with different things that your body's trying to process. And that's why we feel like garbage the next morning when we drink too much of anything is yeah. that your body's trying to break down all these different enzymes. And, you know, the less pure it is, meaning the more things there are in it. Uh, the more your body has to work to do that. Whereas with 100% agave tequila, if it hasn't been 
you know, lots of sweeteners or additives or things, you're, you should wake up, you know, in pretty decent shape the next day. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> depending on how much you drink, but, um, right. you know, a lot of people say, oh, I can drink 100% agave tequila and get no hangover. So, yeah, well, but you could if you make a sugary margarita with it and you're in, in, ingesting too many different things that your body has to didn't go fight, right? Or not fight, yeah. but break made down. With, made with sour mix with uh, high right. fructose corn syrup and artificial like, flavors and colors. All that good all stuff, that. yep. <laughs> but t- talking about mixto, I always assumed it was called mixto because neutral grain spirit was added after the fact, but I learned at the class that that's not the case. As you, as you said, it's actually before fermentation, other sugars are introduced other than uh, the blue Weber agave. Correct. I, I never read that anywhere. I just made that assumption on on my own. But <laughs> yeah, I guess I just assumed it. It's right. interesting. Um, so anyway, the the Blue Weber Agave, um, 100% Agave tequila uh, comes as you said, silver reposado, anejo, extra anejo, and that's just silver. So you want to explain the the difference between those four? Yeah. So Blanco is unaged, although you can technically. It can touch wood for up to two months and still be called a Blanco. So there are a few brands out there that they're Blanco or Silver. Those words are interchangeable in the U.S. Um, you, you might see that they're slightly dark for what you would think a Blanco should look like. Um, so up to two months, you can actually do it. Very few brands do it because, you know, it's extra time, it's extra cost, etc. And really, what are you doing? I mean, Blancos are the heart and soul of the agave. That's what you know, tequila is meant to be is a Blanco. Uh, a Reposado is anywhere aged from two months up to 12 months. Um, it It's typically we're using um, used uh, bourbon and whiskey barrels, particularly in our process, but the, the industry is using a lot of that because there's a lot of that on the, on the U.S. side of the border that can be purchased and brought down to Mexico. Not many brands use brand new barrels, and part of the reason is that, A, they're expensive, but B, you get a lot of oak flavor when you're using a brand new barrel so think of using a tea bag for the first time versus using it the second or the third time obviously the, the strength of the tea lessens um on the third third go so that's kind of like our strategy we are here to make tequila we want you to always taste agave in all of our expressions we don't want it to be over oaked because essentially the more any alcohol sits in the barrel i mean spirit um it starts to taste like a whiskey or a bourbon, because that's where a lot of their flavor actually is coming from, ultimately. So the Reposado, ours is only aged six months, and that's what you're drinking today. You can age it up to a year. So on the market in the U.S., you usually will see a very young Reposado, because they just want to be able to say, we have a Reposado, or you'll see one maxed out almost to the to the one-year mark. Um, you know, why they take that approach versus the younger approach, that's, you know, any brand's decision to do and then in yehos can be anywhere from one year to three years ours is only one year we we rest it as little time as we can again because we want you to always experience agave throughout the process mm-hmm. um so some people say well why don't you age it longer it's like well because i don't really want to make whiskey or bourbon you know i want to make tequila yeah. and right. our añejo is much younger than most so most on the market will be around the two and a half to three year mark ours is only one year Yet, when we submitted it to a wine enthusiast, they did a call for Añejos in 2019, blind taste tested them. We got an extremely high rating. Um, we got a 95 rating, which is very high for tequilas or Añejos in general. And I think it is because the the raters felt, wow, this is really good. This is very different. It's not over-aged. It's not over 
much like a whiskey or bourbon might taste like. Right. Because there's a lot of them out there that you could blind taste somebody that's, you know, not necessarily a connoisseur and put it up against a bourbon or a whiskey and they might say, oh, yeah, that's a great whiskey or that's a great bourbon. Again, it sat in the barrel for three years. It's going to start taking on a lot more of those characteristics. And, of course, in a warm in a warm climate, it ages, it takes on the flavors of the barrels much faster than, say, in Scotland when, you know, you're looking at 18-year-old scotch, but it's a cooler climate. I mean, if much you left cooler climate, tequila, that's right. If, if you left something in a barrel 18 years in, in uh, Mexico, you wouldn't, first of all, you wouldn't have much left. So you wouldn't have anything <laughs> left, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a that's a great point. And then the extra in Yeho cat, uh, categories, um, three to you know upwards of five to seven years. Cristalino is something that's relatively new and it's not an official category, and it's very confusing because it ends up being an aged tequila, but that looks like a blanco now because they've filtered out the color from the barrel and they filtered out the oak. Generally speaking, is is most of the brands that are out there they're trying to get rid of those two things. And it's not an official category. Whether or not it ever will be its own categories up in the air. Some of them do. Some brands are doing it with, you know, a base of reposado. Some of them are doing it with a base of uh, añejo. Some of them are doing it with a base of extra añejo. So there's a lot of looseness in the category of cristalino. So like Don Julio Sesenta or Seventy, is one of one of the ones that's fairly popular in the U.S. Um, to me, it doesn't taste like tequila at all. Because now, first you've aged it. Usually, it's a. It's usually it's an añejo. So you've aged it, you know, several years. So it becomes much more like a whiskey or bourbon. But then you removed the oak, and you remove the coloring, so it looks like a blanco. But to me, it just they're usually almost always oversweetened, and most of the time, those brands are having to put flavors back in there because in the filtration processes that they're using they're really abrasive and they're stripping away most of the flavor so to me they're just what are they you know it's it could be anything yeah. you know, if, if you didn't if it didn't come out of a bottle that says tequila on it <clears> you <throat> might you might think it's anything you might think it's a flavored vodka you might think it's i don't know what you you're just some general spirit really so it's a weird right. category uh, hiatus will most likely never ever do that unless we figure <laughs> out a way to do it much softer um but to me, you know, you walk into a liquor store and you see a bottle of Blanco at $40 and, you know, Reposado at $45, $50, and Yeho at $60, Extra Yeho at $70, Cristalino, it's like, wait, it looks like a Blanco, but it's 80 bucks. Like, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. You know? It's confusing, <laughs> I think. So we'll see if that category ever really truly expands um, beyond what it, what it is today. I was blown away uh, at the class and then... Um I actually a week a week after that class I was lucky enough to travel to um the town of Tequila. Oh great. Oh, <laughs> as good. a guest of um Fortaleza. Oh great. And, uh, great brand. Yeah, yeah. And uh and actually we visited a couple others as well, but um it was an amazing trip, but between the the class that you guys gave and that trip, I mean I learned so much that I didn't know. For instance, one thing that I was just blown away with is organization the CRT highly regulates a lot of things that go on you know and, the, and there's inspectors on site every every day right 100 percent. so i've worked in in latin america for probably half of my life i've lived in mexico a very long time 
out of all the industries, and I've worked in aviation, I've worked in finance, I've worked in real estate, I've worked in technology down there. Now this, this is the most highly regulated industry that I've worked with in, in Mexico. <laughs> more, um, like, more highly regulated than a- aviation. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really truly is. And, and I understand it. It's one of their big exports. You know, the, again, the U.S. consumes 50% of the production alone you know so that's that's a monster yeah I, for, I forget the numbers exactly but i was i was surprised to hear that more tequila is exported from mexico than drunk in mexico and then of those exports i forget what the number is was it 80 percent goes to the u.s something like that so, yeah about that so i think the u.s consumes about 52 percent of all production wow. um and then yeah we're the biggest export so i think we're 75 80 percent or something like that um, so it's a significant business, but yeah, back to the regulation. One of my first meetings when I decided to take this journey was, um, I went down and I knocked on the tequila regulatory council's door and said, how do I know that as a foreigner investing in a tequila brand that I'm not getting something else in a bottle? And they walked me through the entire process and I met with them several times. We have a great relationship. We've now done like nine classes with them up here in, in, in the U S uh, like the one that you attended. And um, yeah, it's it's significant what they do, and I understand it. It's a big business. It's protected, just like you know, champagne is protected within France and cognac. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a few other spirits that have that level of protection. Um, so they they work hard to protect it. And in the U.S., their job, um, the the branch that they have in the U.S., their job is to do a few things. One's the education, like what you attended, but also to be checking the market to make sure there's not brands out there that are calling themselves a tequila um, are fake products on the market. So they're consistently going into liquor stores and they will, they will go in, you know, to restaurants and bars, whatever, and they will buy or they'll look, they'll inspect the bottle on the shelf um, and they'll buy products and they'll send those products back to Mexico, back to their own labs to have them tested. Cause every bottle of tequila has a number on it. And that number, uh, goes back to a batch that was made and to your point they're always on site the the tequila regulatory council people are always there um, and they can pull up that number to see if what's in that bottle that she bought or he bought in the u.s and sent back down to mexico matches the same um, as that batch did uh, that they have on file that they can pull up the results and they can see just to make sure somebody's not you know Maybe making some tequila out of Mexico and exporting it as a brand, but then up here making something like tequila and putting it in a bottle with the same name and everything and trying to sell it on the U.S., you know, this side. Um, so right, it's quite right. interesting. On the other hand, what I was amazed with, you know, it's so highly regulated. On the other hand, there's shortcuts that can be taken that don't have to be mentioned on the bottle, as we spoke about with the diffusers and the autoclaves and all these things. And then the additives, we haven't even talked about that yet. But, the, you know, you're allowed to put, is it 1%? of uh, a few different items in after distillation, which which you don't do, I believe, right? That's correct. So your first point, I just want to clarify, the the, the diffuser, that is, is, it's an approved process. So the diffuser, autoclave, a brick oven, and then even the, you know, the traditional pit, like what Moscow uses, those are all approved ways to, to, to make the product, to, to cook the agave. Um, so there's nothing fishy going on there. It's just very controversial, particularly the diffuser um, products. That's very con- controversial within the industry. Um, but the additives, that's where things get a little bit slippery. So 1% by volume of very specific additives, which is glycerin, oak extract, sugar, and caramel, are allowed 
other than in the Blanco, you're not supposed to be able to put any of that stuff in there. Now, that rule only changed probably in 2014. Before that, the, the wording was very loose that even Blancos were being you know, played with. Um, but when it comes down to reality, are people putting other things in there? Absolutely. Are there other flavors that can be induced? Yes, but it's supposed to be labeled. So you see some tequilas that say they make it with a, some coconut water or something. So there's certain things that have been approved, but you have to say what it is that's been approved. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's um, questionable. And my feel is a lot of these big brands that were already making Blancos that had vanilla perhaps in it or something, those were probably just grandfathered in as, well, we can't tell this big brand that's been doing this for you know 30 years they have to now change their flavor profile completely. So I imagine a lot of things were just grandfathered in and people look the other way, but then those same distilleries are making 5, 10, 15 products. So they're probably just using that same base across all those products, perhaps. So kind of like everything becomes grandfathered in, in a way. This is just my theory on how it works. <laughs> okay. But yes, you, you, you'll, you can line up six or seven different brands of tequila, uh, particularly on this side of the border, and you can smell it you know you smell a blanco that has a lot of vanilla aroma that's not normal you know that's not right <laughs> you know you get a little vanilla out of the barrel when you age something of course but it shouldn't be overwhelming you know you see some of these brands uh, they're añejos they look like they've been aged for 20 years or so dark yeah well that's caramel you know that's coloring that they're putting in there now are they breaking the rules no because by percentage they can put up to one percent by volume but part of the issue is some of these rules were written so long ago that, like uh, oak extracts, you know, 20 years ago, let's say, would have been one thing. But today, the technology around extraction is so much better that that same 1% volume, it, for the same drop of oak extract, it might be a thousand times stronger than it was when they oh, wrote wow. that rule. So you can get something that tastes super oaky, and you're like, wait a minute, most of these brands are using used barrels. It shouldn't be so oaky, especially if it's a reposado. It's only been in there for a year, right? Yeah. But that's where you know that's where things get tricky. And unfortunately, yeah, there's no labeling requirements. But this isn't just a tequila issue. I mean, it's called rectification, and almost every spirit allows it. I mean, whiskey companies want their whiskey to always look and taste and and look the, you know the same, and so they allow it because you know you get variations with different barrels and blah 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 blah. So there's rules within all the spirits that kind of allow that, but some of them abuse it more than others. And I think, unfortunately, tequila is one that, you know, there's a lot of questionable you know, practices. Right. Is there any movement, pushback, more authentic brands like yourself maybe that want to add a new new category or um, or new labeling? Allow? I mean, are you allowed to say on the label, no, nothing added after distillation or words to that effect? Well, that's a great question. So there are some brands I've seen put, their you know ingredients on the label i don't know how accurate it is i don't know what their process would be there's no requirement to do that it's certainly interesting approach um, i know one of the distilleries i had met with years ago um, they claimed and this was a diffuser producing you know, distillery that they claimed that they had this this the lowest amount of methanol um, of any brand out there um, and that they had actually gotten permission to use that somehow in their marketing materials, um, but I, you know, I, I haven't seen any brand really take the, the lead on um, doing that, and I doubt the regulation is going to change because too many of the, you know, old 
you know, tequila producers would have an awakening, <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. So I don't anticipate <laughs> that will change. Um, now, will more, more brands do it uh, because they want the transparency and they want to use that as a differentiator? Absolutely, I could see that happening. Um, how how it would go about if there's nobody overseeing that, like there would be, like if your box of cereal says what's in there, well, somebody's checking on that regularly. But if there's no regulation that says that it must be there, then who's going to ever check on it? I don't know. So you'd be really just trusting mm-hmm. that whatever brand you're, you're you're buying from is is doing that. Now, a lot of the times right. you can you can sense it immediately. Like if you were to just take a, a splash of a particular product in your hand and kind of rub it around and let it dry a little bit, you can feel if it's super sticky. You know, you mm-hmm. can feel if there's been maybe sweeteners in there. You can't necessarily tell, tell if there's been caramel coloring put in there, but you can tell certain things. And even uh, the viscosity of the tequila, the reason they allow glycerin is to give it more of a full body mouthfeel, I guess, which can be achieved without putting that in there, which is what we do. We use a, an oxygen oxygenation um, process that just kind of bubbles the tequila up, gives it more of a, a mouthfeel, I guess. Uh, but you can tell some of them, it's like almost syrupy. It's almost like a, a thick tequila, and that's not natural. I mean, very rare circumstance that that would be a natural phenomenon. So, you know. Yeah, this this does have a, a I would say, a silky mouthfeel. It's um, it's quite nice on the on the palate. Yeah, and that's a it's a twenty four hour oxygenation that we do just before we go to bottling that gives it that little bit of uh, extra you know, mouthfeel. Oh, that's never, the natural way to do before. it. You can you know that's the natural way to do it. It's an extra cost. It's an extra step in the process. But so wait, again, wait, our, what our, is the process exactly? Uh, we 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 do oxygenation for I think it's up to twenty four hours. So we. Once the product comes out of distillation, before it goes into bottling or into aging, um, we put it in stainless steel tanks and then we reoxygenate it at that point. Usually our Blanco will then go straight into bottling or uh, it'll go into aging. And then after aging, again, before bottling, we will do that process again so that it, it has that nice mouthfeel to it. But mm, that's cool. all natural. Again, that's not adding any, you know, right. typically it's glycerin that's being put in there. Right, right. Well, man, I learned a lot, and uh, I have my diploma here that was thanks to you. Ah, oh, good. Cool. You're, you're a ninja. <laughs> and I got my uh, the book that I got as a class. I've referred back to this many times, and I brought it. I brought it along with me to um, on my trip to Mexico to, oh, to the town of Tequila. Oh, that's and, great. Um, I was on, I was on a press trip with uh, four other people, and and some questions came up uh, that our hosts didn't know the answer to so i whipped out this book and we we found the answer every time that we were looking for oh that's really, wonderful really cool yeah yeah it was really cool it's an intense um, course it's it's a big um you know it's a big ask for somebody to come in and spend you know f- up to six hours plus take a test you know a lot of people hear the test part and they're like ah it's open book everybody <laughs> if you want to take the course it's open book but it's you know again it's that unbiased education and everything that we stand for as a brand we you know we do our little ten minute you know before the class we talk about things that we want you then to ask about like such as diffusers because it's again very controversial additives again very controversial um, and that's kind of the flow because we want to open up your mind so that when the the instructor's up there because they're neutral they're the Tequila Regulatory Council all they're doing is making sure people are following the rules. They're not going to tell you if that's a good or bad tequila, but the more you know, uh, you know, from somebody that works in the trade, the the more questions you can ask and the more information that you can then pass on to the consumer. Because the way we see it, you're totally the gatekeepers. You know, how many times does somebody walk into 
to a bar or to a restaurant or to a liquor store and really not know what they want. Yeah. They want to try something new, but they're looking for some help, you know. And tequila is so confusing. Think about a liquor store. You know, you got Blancos, Repos, you know, you got 100% agave, you know, tequila only, you know, the mixto. You got Cristalino, which is this category that doesn't actually officially exist. You got all these things. They're all different colors. The, most of the bottles are, you know, have almost no information about where it comes from. Is it Tequila Valley? Is it Highlands? Is it a Lowland? You know, it's nothing. It's a very confusing. And then the prices are all over the place. <laughs> it's like, so the yeah. consumer walking in the liquor store, if they don't like have a little bit of education or have somebody in the store level that can actually help them. You know, it's a daunting task. Yeah, How do you know sure. that, you know, 40 to $50 you're going to spend on a, you know, Blanco or Reposado is, is not going to be a, you know unpleasant experience when you get home. I can only imagine some brands will put a high price point on it just to make people assume that it's good. <laughs> Perception is the only reality, right? So, yes, 100%. <laughs> like, there's some of the big competitors that, you know, we face out there that are the big known brands I love blind taste testing people against them because we almost yeah. win every single time. Has nothing to do with price point. I mean, ours, all tequilas and mezcal should be way more expensive at the, at the shelf than they are today. But fortunately and unfortunately, the, the labor costs in Mexico are still extremely low because it's a very manual process. You cannot harvest the agave with equipment. There's no machine that can go through a field and pulling the agaves out, it all is done by hand, and a lot of it is done because that person, that hemador that's doing it, that farmer, knows that that thing is ripe or it's not ripe. <laughs> a machine can never do that. And they're all different sizes, they're all different shapes. It's like, it's such a manual process. Even like I said earlier, in our in our case, you know, they're manually loading the ovens. I've seen, you know, I've seen other brands that use like a bobcat that literally just shovels stuff into the oven. You know, but that's not normal. Like, it's such a manual experience or manual process. But, you know, the labor costs are very low still in Mexico, which is unfortunate for them. Um, but, you know, a bottle of Blanco shouldn't be less than 50 bucks uh, just based on no. how much manual labor and the fact that that plant was in the ground for seven to nine years. It's like, let's not forget that part. I don't know how they it do it. It should be the most expensive spirit. Been on you know on the market literally. I tell you, every time I go to a distillery, whether whether it's tequila or or whatever, or even you know bourbon or anything, I'm like, when you see how it's made, I'm like, I don't think you guys are charging enough for this stuff. <laughs> right, right. And so yeah, if you see a really cheap tequila at a store, be suspicious. <laughs> There's a reason. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to see in the town of tequila the uh, the big giant brands that you would know just huge trucks lined up waiting to get through the gates, you know, and then huge trucks coming out with the dried up waste product of what was left behind. And, yep. <laughs> you know, the, the guys that make it authentically just down the road, you know, there's guys in like hip boots in a pit, you know, with pitchforks. And right. <laughs> I can't imagine that's going on behind those gates there and the, at those big brands. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, when you, I won't mention the brands that you're talking about, but when you think about yeah. them, downtown tequila which it's really a small town but two of the biggest producers in the in the industry are literally side by side almost i mean they're maybe one block apart and you go to their you know you go on their little tour and it, it you know one of them looks like an oil refinery you would never know what they're making in there <laughs> but you know they 
they're literally breathing each other's fumes. So when we talk about open air fermentation, I mean, we're outside of downtown, up on the side of a, a, a distinct volcano, extinct volcano, and lots of fresh air. Like there's not another distiller anywhere near us. Whereas some of our bigger competitors are like literally side by side breathing each other's fumes. So it's just it's a different you know it's a different process. It's a different product, etc. Not knocking it. Everybody can choose what they like. Uh, but we certainly are proud of what we've accomplished in our short time on the market. And I think it is because of my original idea of there's so many great tequilas on that side of the border. Why aren't some of those on this side of the border? I mean, out of 1,600 brands that are registered in Mexico, more or less, you know, we, we get very few of those on this side of the border. And you almost always see the same 20 or 30 in the the average back bar. But there's so many great ones that will never be exported because they're small brands or you know, either the distillery's teeny and can only make so much production anyway, or the brand owners just had no intention of going to the U.S. market because there's plenty of market, you know, in Mexico alone. Um, so I'd say we probably only get 400 of the 1,600 brands that ever even crossed the border, but generally you only see the same 20 or 30 uh, when you're out in the marketplace. And I just thought, you know, we need a, uh, th- there needs to be a better expression of what real tequila should taste like, at least all, in, again, in my opinion. But it's resonated. And we, again, I mentioned we got the 95 rating from Wine Enthusiast. We were only five weeks old at that time, five weeks on the market at that point. We submitted all three expressions to the San Francisco World Spirits Competition in 2019. And our Reposado got gold medal, and uh, our Blanco and Añejo both got uh, silver medals, which, again, there was 4,000 brands, I think, that were submitted. Um, so it's not just one winner, but like we got high ratings amongst a lot of brands that were blind taste tested. And then, you know, several of the big publications that we had no relationship with, never spent a dime marketing, you know, on advertising with, you know, like Maxim Magazine last year on National Tequila Day named us one of the top 10 tequilas to be drinking. Esquire named us one of the top uh, 29 bottles of booze in 2019. Nice. Later in the year, wine enthusiasts named us one of the top 100 spirits. And it's not that I think we're genius or anything. I just think we really did put together a nice product that's much more authentic flavor profile to what the true expression of tequila should be. Like, It's cut out the garbage that most of us don't even know is in a lot of these you know, brands of tequila on the side of the border. Yeah. Um, so you just get a much cleaner spirit. And as people become more conscious of what they're eating and drinking in general, um, you know, it that's what we want. We want something, and I love it when people say it tastes so clean, because, yeah, they might not have ever had a good, authentic, clean tequila before. They've been drinking a brand that they found on this side of the border you know, most of the time, and they may have never really experienced what the true you know, voice of tequila is supposed to be like. Yeah, yeah. At least in my opinion. You know, my opinion is different. I, I spent about eight years of my life in Mexico. I, I grew up in Texas with lots of friends from Mexico, but then my family always did business in Mexico, so they were always bringing back good tequila. So I grew up in a household of tequila that I didn't know any better. It was all good stuff, because most of it wasn't off-the-shelf in the U.S. You know, product. Um, but you know, not everybody's had that you know experience, so uh, we really like to say we're the very authentic flavor. And what was funny is our master distiller, who's been in the business for uh, 40 years, when I was trying to explain to him what I wanted to accomplish, he he was he wasn't having it. He's like, "You're a crazy gringo," and he only speaks Spanish. <laughs> uh, he's like, "You're like the first gringo that's ever come down here to our distillery and said, I want to recreate basically what you guys do naturally for your own 
market and your Mexican market. He says, I think you're, uh, he says, I, I don't think you know your market. I don't think you know the American market. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I think the American market doesn't know good, necessarily know good tequila because they drink what they're given. You know, most of them aren't like me that have had the luck of living in Mexico and really getting a broad variety. You know, we go in and what's on the shelf is what we have to choose from. So, yeah, we buy it. Doesn't mean we wouldn't buy something different or better if it was available to us. So he and I like <laughs> argued because <laughs> he didn't want me. He didn't want us to fail as a brand. He wanted us to be oh, successful yeah. because it's right. it's good business for them. And 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 in the end, I was like, no, I, because when I lived in Mexico, La Cofradia, which is our distillery, their brands of tequila, which they don't export to the U.S., um, um, were some of my favorite products. Uh, and I had actually toured their distillery back in. 2007 you know nearly a decade before i ever thought about getting in this business and it was such a beautiful place um very romantic version of what you want to think of as a tequila distillery and never in my wildest dreams at that time did i think oh one day i'm gonna have a brand but i loved their product when i lived in mexico and was disappointed when i moved back to the u.s that i couldn't get it because it was that flavor profile that was interesting to me and so you know they were very happy in the end that that's what I wanted, and they're very happy. Obviously, now that we've been, uh, we've had this success and these accolades um, of being a very, you know, uh, a, a high quality but good tequila that people can drink. You know, I love it when people go from only ever drinking in añejos because that's the best version of tequila that they knew to to switching to our blanco and saying, "Wow, I can just drink this on the rocks, and it's unbelievably smooth and it's delicious. It's very, you know, earthy and peppery and all the things that agave's about, right? But it hasn't been covered up with other things that aren't natural, uh, unfortunately, which is most of their experience. So it's it's been fun. Sorry, I, I gave you a very long winded answer to, <laughs> to a question. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> I don't either, but that was great. Well, Christopher, I really appreciate your time and. Uh, Thank you so much again for that class. That was huge. Oh, you mentioned um, some of that's available online, maybe or. Uh, so during this time, our our brand ambassador has done a few master classes. So if you go to Hiatus's YouTube channel, there's a couple of lengthy, um, in depth. I think he's done three now. Uh, courses like what we would call a master class. So it's taking a piece of the day that you went um, and going in detail about that particular topic. Uh, we're going to continue doing those so that we kind of have an encyclopedia of information that anybody can go to. But what he's doing is very specific to to people in the trade that really want that deep dive education. It's not necessarily going to be, um, you know, it's probably it might be too much information for the average consumer to want to listen to because they're hour long and they're very detailed. Uh, but yeah, so our YouTube channel, I I don't know the exact URL for it, but just look for Hiatus Tequila and you should find that. And then as soon as the the Tequila Regulatory Council allows again because they, we had our last class in um, early March, the first week in March, just before things got very dicey with the the pandemic, and we had our last class, um, and then we had to cancel our April and May courses. But if they allow trainings to pick back up, we we had a couple uh, in the fall. I think it was October and November, similar, you know, exactly the same type that you went to. I think one of those was in New York and one of those will be in Florida. But if anybody's interested from the trade to, to do that, again, it's a you know, it's a big commitment, as you know. It's about six hours all up. Um, 
with the test. Don't forget the test. <laughs> but you got your diploma, so you passed that test, and it's I open book. So I was, <laughs> I was getting worried. It was a couple months went by before I was getting worried I didn't pass. <laughs> oh, great. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, cool, Christopher. This has been amazing. Uh, I hope our listeners learned a lot, and um, I know I certainly have. And uh, thank you for everything. You bet. Please follow us, Hiatus Tequila, on Instagram, on Facebook, all that good stuff. Um, and if anybody's interested in the education, they can direct message us. And as soon as we are, we know when the courses will be allowed again, we'll, we'll uh, gladly take people to sign up for it. Awesome. Well, cheers, man. Salute. All right. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Stay Cinco healthy, everybody. Looking forward to staying in touch with you. <laughs> cheers. All right. Cheers.